So anyway, why don't you stand with me to read God's Word, we will get started. My name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, and it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, but he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who cry out to you to understand that you are God with us and that we would live out the understanding of this good news of how we speak to those around us, of how we live out our lives, of of how their gospel penetrates everything that we do so that we would show the world who you are in practical ways and that all would come to worship and love and follow you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we thought since we started in a new to us building, you know, just at the end of last year, the first service or first series in this new to us building would be something that brought us all back together again that's centered around the gospel. It's kind of like a quest, uh, but our questions aren't what is your name or what's your favorite color or what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Uh, no? <laughs> I guess it is kind of a quest, right? Because our quest is to understand what the gospel is better, the good news of Jesus. Uh, again, there are journey guides on all the tables around the room. We'd love for you to take one. If you don't have one in here, you will get short, very short daily little devotions to start spending time with God if you don't do that already. Uh, there are gospel community notes, family notes, so you can kind of keep moving forward in what we're talking about and going through. There's gospel statements we cover every week. We'd like for you to maybe, in your own words, find a way to rewrite those. My wife rewrote a, a really long one. I did a couple weeks ago in like one really short sentence. She was an English teacher for many years, and so she can do that really well. And I'm like, well, that's so simple. And she's all, that's how you should have wrote it. And I'm like, eat. Okay, whatever. So there you go. We do all this because we want to move in the same direction that God is calling us to, to understand the gospel in our lives. Now, the word gospel, when people hear that, it sounds like such a churchy Christian word, but it didn't start that way. The word gospel is this word evangelion, and it simply means the good news or the telling of good news. And so the greatest news we believe the world has ever heard or ever known is the good news of what Jesus has done to bring us back into relationship with God and one another again. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, I'm committed to sharing the gospel. What they share is not the gospel. It's all this weird gibberish of feelings and stuff like that. Uh, Some people will say things like, um, God loves you. And while that's part of the gospel, it's not the entire gospel. Or some people say, Jesus changed my life. That's not the gospel. That's the result of the gospel. The gospel, in one word, is Jesus, but it's bigger than that. It's definitive news about what Jesus has done from the foundation of the world to rescue and save people and bring us back into relationship with God again. So it's definite content all focused on what Jesus does and how we, by grace, get to partake in the benefits of what God is doing. So, we called this series, didn't see that coming, because none of us saw the grace of God coming. Uh, It's something he himself determined to do. So in the last eight weeks, we have kind of run through the entire Old Testament scriptures, and if you have been through that, you can wipe your brow of the sweat because, whew, you made it. Okay, for one, and we're gonna st- today is kind of gonna be a little whirlwind too. But next week we're gonna focus more on Jesus and who He is and and kind of what He's doing. Uh, this is all to bring us back to understand that by grace we have been saved, that God is good, and God is the one that rescues. So today we actually are gonna get to Jesus, God in the flesh, which nobody saw coming at all. God kept talking about this in the entire Old Testament scriptures about what He would do, but nobody really believed it. I hope this series has not been a bummer for you because every week it's 
It's like, hey, look what people did, or look what God did, look what people did with it. It's so horrible. Like, you start with Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're naked, they're eating fruit, we're like, woohoo, and what do they do? They disobey God and run away, and they mess that all up. As soon as you get out of the garden, you got Cain and Abel, these two brothers, first siblings, and one kills the other because the other one worships God better than him. That's not really a way to worship God any better by killing somebody who worships God better than you. You get to this guy named Noah, and God is recreating the earth again and setting Noah upon it. And what does Noah do? Gets off of the ark, takes enough time to plant a vineyard, grow some grapes, ferment those grapes, make wine, get drunk, and pass out naked in his tent. He is committed. Okay, I mean, I'm, it, that's what we do. We always keep going the wrong way with this. God eventually comes to this guy named Abraham and makes promises to him about what he will do. And Abraham, though he trusts God, he stumbles all along the way. And you see people continually to do this. Uh, you see all the way up until like David and Bathsheba, Israel's greatest king. You know, David messes up with this woman named Bathsheba. And what you do throughout the scriptures is you see all of man's failures because it's always moving towards Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3, God promised that Jesus would come to rescue and save us. So the last couple weeks here, we've been looking at how God's people were slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God, rescue us, save us. God hears that cry. God redeems them. God frees them. God brings them out. He takes them to a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, God gives them a mission and an identity. You will be my people to the world. The message of what I have done for you and in you should go to everybody that I long to bring rescue and redemption. And God says to them, you will be me to the world. You will represent who I am. You will be like God to the world. Not that God is like us, but we will be like him so the world can see who he is. Eventually they get their own country. And in their own country, they ask God to have a human king. And so God gives them a human king. And eventually get to this guy named Solomon who is king. And Solomon starts to do the same thing to other people that were once done to the Israelites. Don Golden actually called Solomon's empire the empire of indifference. The people of God are meant to be this light in the world that everybody could see. They're meant to live the reality of the kingdom of God here on this earth. But they who were once oppressed become oppressors of other people. In 1 Kings 9 verse 15 it says, This is the account of the forced slavery that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord, his own house, and the Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Now, he drafts these people, forced labor, which is another word for slave. And so Solomon is using slaves. God is against slavery. Don't let people who say the Bible condones slavery convince you of their lies. It doesn't condone slavery. It doesn't promote it. So Solomon is using slaves to build a temple to God who is against slavery. He will then use these same people to build his own palace, his own place of comfort. And then you get to this thing and it says, Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer. And if you don't understand that, you just kind of skip right over it. Let me help you with this, okay? Megiddo in English, we would translate as Armageddon. Does that make a little more sense? Like, what? Armageddon? Yes, yes. Here's the picture. Uh, This is where it's located, and this is what it looks like today. And in Megiddo and Armageddon, you have three different valleys that kind of funnel into this place. There's one from Asia, there's one from Africa, and there's one from Europe. It's kind of strategic. Battles have been fought here where people have said that blood has flowed to like the horse's reins in that. And this is important because God intended his people to hear the cry of the people around them, to hear the oppressed, to bring mercy and justice and righteousness, to go into the world and invite people into God's kingdom. And instead, Solomon is building these cities whose sole purpose 
is to protect his own empire. He's not going out. He's stopping people from coming in. He's trying to protect everything he has. All of his money and power are going to protect and shore up his own kingdom. And I pointed out to you last week how the text keeps reminding that Solomon is a son of David. The son of David. The son of David. Because God promises that someone from the line of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever, meaning rule and reign forever. And what you see is that cannot be a human king. It just can't because we're not good saviors. That Israel is a people, they believe they've arrived. They're building their empire. They're building their country like everyone else around them. In Egypt, they're slaves. In Sinai, they get a calling. In Jerusalem, they've arrived. But they didn't become who they were meant to be because they refused to listen to God. And so God will eventually allow them to fall and send them into a place called Babylon. So open your Bibles to Amos chapter 6. It's very famous, that Amos. Amos chapter 6. You guys are slow, okay? And I, am, I know I'm being repetitive today, okay? But God shows up to slaves in Egypt, brings them out. He takes them to Sinai, be my message to the world, show what the world, show what I'm like, be my priest to the world, the good news, live the gospel. And they end up in Jerusalem, and the former slaves end up building their empire in the backs of slaves. Solomon, I showed you, actually becomes an arms dealer. He has slaves build his military installation and his palaces. And so in Jerusalem, this becomes more and more and more about them. And so God starts to raise up these prophets. I mean, like, Haran on fire, bug-eyed, crazy names like Nahum and Habakkuk and Haggai and Zephaniah. And they start yelling, this is not right. What is happening here is not right. Listen to what God is saying. You had slaves. This is not right. It's not what God had in mind for you. And so they start calling the empire on the carpet saying, hey, you need to shape up. So Amos uh, was a farmer, so down-to-earth kind of guy. And this is what he says, Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease, that's the word for complacent, in Zion, that's Jerusalem. Now, this is be for us today like a selfie culture. Like we're always taking selfies and posting them. It's all about me. Like all of your Facebook friends are just pictures of them. Right? That's, that's a selfie culture. It's complacent. It's all about us. He says, And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men are the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go to verse 4. I'm going to read this to you from the NIV. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. This would be referring to the divided kingdom of where they are right now. You don't grieve that you're divided. What you're so focused on is your own comfort. Verse 12 says, Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. These are heavy, heavy words. When we look at this, we would seem to think that people who are you know, just looking at their own comfort are the rich or college professors with tenure who spout some of the dumbest stuff you ever heard in the world because, hey, they're the elite. This is referring to everybody. This is not referring to those people that we judge over there. This is us looking at our own comfort and only caring about our own comfort. Amos's rant will go on for nine chapters, and it's really brilliant. You should read it all. Uh, but go to chapter 8, verse 4. He goes there, and this, this is what he says there. He says, uh, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? They're waiting for God's festivals and things that honor Him to be done so they can go back to making more money. He says, Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. 
This is, oh, you need something from me? Well, here, I'll give you this, but you owe me this. Oh, and you really need some food? Well, I swept up all this other stuff with it. But it really doesn't matter because you can only buy it. From, so here, you got to buy the garbage with the food that, that's in there. These prophets keep coming. This is not right. This is not right. What you are doing is not what God wants you to be. This is written in poetry, but it's also written, written in a historical account. Open your Bibles to Second Chronicles, chapter 36. See, I told you you're going to use that. Like, like what is that? Right. right, look it up, look it up, you'll get there. Uh, this is an historical record of this account. God kind of gets put in an awkward position when some of this happens because, you know, he says, you're my people, be my message to the world. I think it's kind of awkward for him today sometimes with how Christians live as well because the way the world was supposed to know who God is was how his people live. And what happens when your people live in a way that doesn't reflect you in any way? Like, what do you do if you're God, and I don't ask that question a lot, by the way, okay, what do you do if you're God and your people show the world everything but what you are actually like? What do you do? Second Chronicles 36, verse, starting verse 15, says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, this is the one who delivered them out of slavery, sent persistently to them by his messengers, his prophets, because he had compassion on his people in his dwelling place. So God keeps coming, and God keeps saying, Listen to me, I'm sending you messengers, because God loves them. Verse 16, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Go to verse 19. I will cover verse 18 in just a second. Verse 19, And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became his servants, that's another word for slave, to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days it lay in des- all days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill seventy years. So they start in Egypt as slaves. They are rescued, receive a mission and identity at Sinai. They build an empire in Jerusalem, begins to go off the rails. And now they are conquered by a king who hauls them off into Babylon as slaves. It's like a big circle. Uh, Babylon is a bad place. Any place that the Rolling Stones names an album after is a bad place. Open your, open your Bible to Psalm 137. And this will be a poem that is written in Babylon by these people. Psalm 137. It lets you know what it's like for many of them in this place. There's actually lots of books written while they're in, in Babylon. But they're out of the promised land in a foreign land. Sometimes we think God's discipline is harsh and it is mean and terrible. But in Babylon, they actually start to remember who they were meant to be. They begin to weep over everything that they lost. Didn't see that. Like, we, we get angry. Like, we're like, how dare God do this to me? But God here is growing them. Psalm 137, verse 1. They say this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing as one of the songs of Zion. They're like, sing as one of your happy songs. We know what your happy songs sound like. You know. Dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. Right? It's, it's, sing is one of your happy songs. It's kind of what it's like. And then they say, how shall we sing this Lord's songs in a foreign land? Like, we have no reason to sing. Everything's been taken away. The NIV says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. What they begin to do is see themselves as once being blessed by God, the message to the world, and now they see themselves as becoming irrelevant. They don't have anything that they thought they once were going to have because for a while they thought they were it. But then they became full of 
it. And then they got selfish and greedy, became oppressors of others. They thought the message of God was just about them. And it's not, I will bless you to be a blessing. They just heard, I will bless you. Oh, God's supposed to bless me. God's supposed to give me whatever I want. Oh, God's going to give me everything. And they forgot what God called them into. God gives them a country so they would be a blessing. And they squander it. Sounds a little bit like us today. Uh, So what did they learn in this exile? Number one, or what did they lose in exile? Number one, they lost intimacy with God. So they've been exiled from their land, uh, just like happened to Adam and Eve. There's kind of parallels in that. You go all the way back to Genesis where we started. Adam and Eve are moved out of the garden. Here they lose their land. When God set the Israelites free from slavery, he speaks to the people. He gives them this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, just like Indiana Jones. And it's response, this is a representative of God's presence. These people would carry the God of all creation, this presence of who he was, with them wherever they went. And their weeping is bitter because they've lost their temple. They feel like they lost their connection. With God. The second thing they lost was their institutions. You got Jerusalem and the temple, and they place this ark in the temple. At one point, God's presence shows up and it fills this temple. And so everything in Israel, social structures, everything surrounded the temple. There is no separation of church and state here. Their very identity hinged on the activity of the temple. Even when they weren't doing it right, it still hinged on it. The verse I skipped, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 18 says, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God. That is bitterness of everything that they lost. They have lost also their power and wealth because it was a confusion and a misuse of their power and wealth that brought judgment. Guys, God is not afraid of money. He's not afraid of you having money or having power or authority, but he is the one who gives it. He gives it to us so we would be a blessing with it. They are bitter and sad because they believe they've lost everything. And I know you probably think I'm beating this point to death, but it will go, it'll make sense. You've got to go with me. In Egypt, they're in a foreign land as slaves. They are oppressed by a foreign king, and they end up in Babylon underneath a foreign king oppressed as slaves. It begins and ends in the same conditions. It ends up where they started. Now, we have learned from a couple weeks ago in this story that God is a God who hears the cry of the oppressed. He always hears the cry. The scripture seems tilted to show that God hears the cry of the oppressed. Didn't see that coming, right? But now they're in Babylon, and what do they do? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. What do people do when they weep? They cry. They cry. And so they cry in Egypt. They cry out in Babylon. And you start hearing things from prophets, like Jeremiah 17, 9. God says, I know the plans I have for you as my people. I will bring you back. We read those verses and we think, oh, God's going to prosper me. Give me everything he wants. No, God's talking to a people who are going to be in slavery for 70 years in Babylon. And he says, many of you will die. You're not going to be treated well, but I know the plans I have for you, and I will bless you, and I will bring you back, but it's going to be in my time. And you need to learn how to trust me in the midst of that. He starts saying these things to these people. Maybe this is a little bit like your journey. You know, following Jesus and who he is. You get to a place where you say, I hit bottom. I had no way out. I was overwhelmed. I can't do it on my own. I was a slave to my desires. And when we become a believer, we cry out to Jesus. Jesus, save me. I, I surrender my heart and my life to you. Come into my heart. Whatever you, you know, we have this thing where we cry out. And because there seems to be a moment that that happens. And God hears that cry. And if we think we have no needs or that we don't understand our needs, physical or spiritual, we're going to think we don't really need God. But when we understand our needs as well as others' needs around us, we begin to understand the gospel, the good news, that God hears the cry. 
For these people, they start crying, God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. We're not in Jerusalem. We're slaves in a foreign land. The temple has been destroyed. Come and rescue again. And it seems that this is where the story always starts. God is the God of the oppressed. God listens to our cry, and God longs to intervene and redeem and restore the broken. That's the message of the gospel. It's about trusting him in the midst of our crises. God will bring these people back out of Babylon, just like he promised. He will bring them back into Jerusalem. They will begin to rebuild their wall and their city and their temple. But he will again send them prophets. And what will they do? They will stumble and fall over and over again. But God is the one who has not done with them. Eventually, you reach the end of the Old Testament scriptures. You've got this book called Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, this is what it says. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In the book of John in the New Testament, it tells you that this Elijah was John the baptizer preceding Jesus. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Jesus shows up. So God says this in Malachi, and then he remains silent for 400 years. And it's not that God's not working and not doing anything. He just stops sending prophets for those 400 years. But Israel clings to this promise. Oh, Elijah. Elijah's going to come. Okay, we got that. And they start thinking, great and awesome day of the Lord. And their mind starts to go to destruction. Yeah, God's going to kill everybody who doesn't agree with me. That's going to be awesome. The great and awesome day of the Lord. Woohoo! Let's pray for that. To, I mean, they start, you know what they sound like? American Christians. That's what they sound like. They really do. It's like, it's like, I can't believe this. No, Jesus is going to come. He's going to rapture me. And you're going to be sorry because you screwed with me. I mean, Jesus. You're going to be sorry because you didn't believe me. I, I mean, Jesus. And we have this crazy mentality. And then when Jesus actually comes, they all miss it. God shows up in their midst and they don't recognize him because they keep forgetting who God really is. And that's a cautionary tale for us. When Jesus is born, the message is given to shepherds, the lowest of the low in that society at that time. Jesus is born to these parents who can't find any room in the inn. They're not privileged. It's like only teenage peasants who can't get a room somewhere. Jesus is placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. God in the flesh becomes a baby, spends his first night in a feeding trough for animals. It's like the writers keep saying, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you understand what's going on here? When God enters flesh, it is poor, Jewish, peasants, teenage kids, questionable circumstances. They can't get a room. And I think, in one sense, we as Americans have a really hard time. Because we relate to the Israelites all too well at the top of their game. That's where we relate. It's hard when we don't have needs to understand needs or dependency upon God. When your fridge is full of food and you say, I don't have anything to eat, let's just go out. It's, it's hard. It's hard when we have cars and stuff. When our government makes TV or right and they subsidize your converter box and your internet and they give you cell phones. It's hard to understand dependency and need. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty at all. I believe that God gives good things to his people. But what do we do with those good things? Do we always feel like we never have enough? Have we made the gospel the good news that God wants to give me stuff? And that God wants to make me comfortable? And that God just wants to bless me? I, it's really hard for us when the world lives on less than, you know, half the world lives on less than two U.S. dollars a day, and we can't even enter that conversation. I think this is why Jesus says things about camels and needles and rich people and heaven and us understanding the kingdom of God in this. Because we're like, well, I'm not rich. According to the rest of the world, we really are. And you look at what Jesus does. And he teaches and he feeds people and crosses lakes by boats and sometimes by foot. It's really kind of interesting. People keep following because he would feed them. 
Because they were hungry. They were hungry. And again, it's showing that God is the God of the oppressed and the forgotten and those on the underside of power. Again, the scriptures never condemn wealth, but always reminds us that it's given to us so we'd be able to spread it around. You, you could probably recite this right now as I'm going to do it again, but God brings his people out of slavery. They become proud and indifferent and end up back in slavery. How often is that still true for us today? We cry out for God, God rescue me, God, and God does. And we're like, wow, Jesus saved me, it's amazing. And you get a few years down the road and we're complacent and we're comfortable. And our lives become more and more about us. We realize we're slaves again to all of these other things. So we cried in, God, rescue me, save me. And God does. Then a few years later, we end up back in that same spot, just centered upon our own comfort. We have the same problems the Israelites did. At the end of the Old Testament, a lot of Israelites have turned, returned, to Egypt, uh, returned to Israel. Many are still actually dispersed. But the Old Testament comes to the stop with, with that promise of this coming Redeemer. You know, this Redeemer is going to come. And this has been recorded all throughout the Old Testament. God promises a Redeemer that's going to come. God even says this to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. That's another Moses, another deliverer to lead them out of their exodus. It's that Jesus is always the point of Scripture. So in Babylon, for them it looks like God has failed them. Uh, they set their affection on him and he allows them to lose their home Jerusalem and they're crying out because they're in slavery. We're reared on Hollywood endings like 22 minutes in a sitcom and it always works out by the end. That Life isn't like that. Okay, I don't know if you've lived life, but it's not really like that. This is, life is more like a Greek tragedy play. <laughs> it really is. And then they go back to Jerusalem and the Old Testament ends with them waiting for this Redeemer and God is silent for 400 years. Now, we get to look back on this from, you know, 2,000 years removed in the future. But we see that God really does have a plan for everything that was lost in the garden in Genesis. I mean, it starts in this garden, but it ends in this city, God's city. In Babylon, God's people start to think about what they lost. All the things they set their affections on that weren't Him. And they start thinking, man, if we got that all back, we'd get it right the next time. We really would. And they didn't, but they started to set their affections there. In 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed for decades. These prophets speak to these people while they're in exile about God's justice, reminding where Israel made it about themselves. So they begin to imagine, okay, if we got it right, what would then that actually look like? If we really got a chance to serve God? And their hope begins to be centered around this coming son of David, a Messiah, an anointed one, the Christ, the rescuer. Solomon was the first son of David, brought them to the pinnacle of their country, but also began to you know, lose all that they had. So they began to look for this new son of David, this new Moses, this new deliverer. What will this person actually look like? Isaiah chapter 61 gives the personality profile for what this new son of David will be. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, that's the word gospel, to the poor. So when the Redeemer comes, this is what the Son of David will look like. The true Son of David is going to rescue us from our sin. He's going to rescue us from our indifference and all the things that we have broken so that we could be, again, God's representatives in the world. We could be his priests. The NIV goes on and says this, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. And the Old Testament kind of ends with this idea of what will it look like when this true son of David actually shows up? Can you imagine how he will fix the mess that is a human heart and begin to restore things in the world? 
And I think the New Testament writers really pick up on this. And I think this, if you look at things in the scripture, it's really interesting. Uh, Exodus 12.40 says, The length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Okay, So 430 years, they're, they're in slavery, they're in bondage in Egypt. And then what you have is 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then the Matthew and, and Luke begin their birth narratives. But typically a rabbi would give his, begin his public ministry at about 30 years of age. Okay, So 430 years. Do you think that they're trying to say anything? 430 years of exile, waiting for the, this Redeemer to set them free, and the Redeemer sets them free and out of Egypt. And now it's silent again, and they wait 430 years, and this Redeemer now shows up. Jesus shows up. What does he say? Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, so that liberty those who are oppressed. He quotes the words, of Isaiah and says, this is me. This is who I am. Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, the arrival of our King, the son of David, who will sit on the throne forever because he is our real King. This is where everything we've talked about in the last eight weeks is going towards Jesus. And I'm going to leave you right there. We'll talk about him in the next couple of weeks, but so this is your gospel statement for the week, okay? The gospel is the good news that our God has called us out of the slavery we have placed ourselves in and given us a calling, an identity, and a new hope centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And I am going to make you repeat that today because this is the culmination of where we've been going. So ready? Three, two, one. The gospel. the gospel is the good news that we have been a people who consistently place ourselves into bondage. We cry out, God rescues, and we get complacent, and we cry out again, and God rescues because he is good, and we get complacent, and we get stuck in our pride, and God, we cry out again, and God rescues. It's a beautiful thing to argue. Our God does not give up on us. He comes and restores, and this is the point of everything you look at through the Old Testament scriptures. Hey, God promises a Redeemer. He's going to come. And what happens? The Redeemer shows up in the person of Jesus and says, I have come to set the captives free. Because He does set us free. It's the point of everything that we're looking at. This is why we talk about communion. It's a reminder of what Jesus did. Jesus comes and He gives Himself for us. That's why you break that cracker to remind you of His body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of His blood that was shed for you and me because He promised that he would be the one who brings about reconciliation between us and God and us and one another. We have sinned. We have separated ourselves from God. And Christ's death and resurrection pays for that, brings us back into relationship with him, takes care of everything that we could not take care of because he himself is good. He is God in the flesh, come to rescue and save lost and broken people. And there is salvation in no one else. And this is why we lift up him. The band's going to come up the three or four of them. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Like I said, there'll be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Maybe you're in a place where you feel like God has come and He has set you free, and then you just slowly settled back into those places of bondage in your life, and you want somebody to pray with you about that. Guys, i got to tell you, it, it is a standard thing that happens to us, and don't feel like you're the only one. Everybody at some place in our lives, we start just kind of fall back into places of complacency. 
when God calls them to grace and goodness. And God, the reason that Jesus came and died and rose is because he knows that about So he brings us back in. He rescues and redeems. All of our sins were taken care of at the place, at the cross, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where it's taken care of. And God, day by day, continues to reconcile and redeem and bring us in again. We, like, like the Israelites, you know, we, we do need to be people, I think, who weep over our sin, who acknowledge those things. But also understanding that what Jesus did is not a place for us to mourn. It's a place to have joy because he has done what we could never do for ourselves. Rescue and redeem and bring us back into God's presence again. Uh, our, our staff had this thing this, this week, a little st- a mini staff retreat. And at the end, we, we were asking how everybody was doing and stuff. And it kind of came about that what everybody shared in their lives were the places we feel like we failed, where, where we're having a hard time you know, getting through certain things. And it kind of seems like that's where our connection actually grew deeper. It's like when we share our failures with one another. And I think it's important to understand that that nobody has it all together, that, that God is the one who comes and redeems us from our failures. And when we don't perceive that we have any needs in our lives, we're not going to understand our need for who He is. But our God comes to us in those places of loss and brokenness, and He restores us and brings us in again, because He is good. He is good. And I think it's good for us as a people many times to sit and weep and talk to one another about the things that we go through in our lives. And so if you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you about things in your life right now. There's offering boxes next to all the doors. We give because God gives so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And we invite you to grab some food, grab one of the didn't see that coming booklets, and start to ask some of these questions that are in there of one another. Where are the places and times that you cry out? Have you ever cried out with somebody else? Have you ever gone through something, maybe uh, in your marriage or a friendship relationship or something like that, where you cried out together for God to do something? Where have you wept with one another? And where have you seen God come and bring restoration? And maybe where are you still hoping that God does? And you guys can pray and weep and cry out together because God always hears the cry. Our God is gracious and good. And we are to come alongside one another and cry out together because our God loves us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us what it means to live in your presence, redeemed lives, that we have been brought in by what you have done. I ask that we would see the great joy that it is of what you have done to rescue us. That in the midst of our sadness and crying out, you will bring restoration again. And that we can trust you in all things. Father, we ask that we would begin to understand that we are forgiven because you were the one who was forsaken for us. That you are the one who has stepped into our life. And that we are not a people who are meant to make you our co-pilot. But that we are to surrender everything to you. And that we wouldn't see you as a crutch. That we would lay all of our lives into your hands. That you would be the scooter that rolls us around. Because we don't need a crutch. We need a God that rescues and saves and unfolds us and carries us. Because we are a people who are so lost and broken. And keep stumbling backwards into brokenness. And yet you, by your own promises, continue to rescue and save. And so teach us to live in that saving grace that you provide. Because you are good. 
Teach us to be your people who live out your message to this world. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.